0: Welcome back to Face the Jury, the podcast focused on issues of medical malpractice, how to spot it, how to prevent it, and how to keep you and your family safe. This episode of Face the Jury is brought to you by Forge Consulting, the settlement planning experts. Visit forgeconsulting.com. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell, and today we have a special guest, John Campbell, who will be joining us. Uh, John is a personal friend and just a wonderful attorney and he's a law professor at the University of Denver. Where John is making a tremendous impact is bringing the field of data analytics to trial lawyers and bringing that information and knowledge about how real people think to help us trial lawyers make informed decisions on how much money to ask for at our trials, how to present the story of our case and how to tell the winning story at trial. It is my pleasure to welcome John to Face the Jury. Uh, John is a very interesting uh, person who brings a lot of different structure and components to trial work. Uh, John is himself a lawyer. He's a law professor at the Sturm College in Denver. He teaches all types of courses, including torts and evidence, uh, but he focuses on Big Data Analytics. And this is something that he's he's been doing uh, that's unique in our field. And he's bringing big data uh, as a component of understanding the, the story, understanding the case, and to give lawyers guidance on how to how to be better lawyers. Really pleased to have, have John with us today and look forward to a good conversation. Uh, good morning, John. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having
0: me. I'm, I'm excited about this. I always
1: like talking with you.
0: <laughs> good. Well, we, we just saw each other out in Las Vegas at a seminar a few weeks ago, so uh, you, you may be tired of talking to me by the end of this podcast, but uh, I, I, always, <laughs> I enjoy, so. always enjoy learning from you, John. And just give our audience an idea. Give us, a, first of all, a, thumb sketch, a thumbnail of who you are, a little bit about your background, and then talk about your company, Empirical Jury, and what you do.
1: Sure. So the, the background part is, we'll keep it short. Um, I, uh, I started as a lawyer in St. Louis at a law firm called the Simon Law Firm. Uh, it's a firm that was started and is still run by John Simon, who's a wonderful trial lawyer, an inner circle member, a very talented lawyer and a very, uh, very good man. And so that's where I started trying cases. And the promise they made me was, uh, we'll get you in the courtroom right away. And they were good to their word. They had me trying cases. I think I'd had my license four months. Uh, and they got me started. So I got to get in the courtroom early and often. Um, as I was there, I started running a class action department uh, because we were facing some tort reform headwinds and we were diversifying a little bit. And I really enjoyed that. But of course, you don't try many class actions. Uh, so you, you do a lot more motion practice and maybe you have a, evidentiary hearings. And then while that was going on, I got kind of out of it was some somewhat luck. But the opportunity came around to join the University of Denver Law School. Uh, and to, to teach, what I started teaching was legal research and writing, um, and I was going to be teaching some torts at some point, but it wasn't clear when. I ended up teaching torts pretty regularly, evidence, also ran an appellate lab where we did kind of a pop-up appeal and got students working on an appeal that ended up in the Second Circuit um, and stuff like that. But while I was there, I, I started to learn about people doing research using large samples, online samples, more statistical analysis. And they were doing this in all sorts of fields, economics, social science, you name it. They were doing it and I got interested. And so there's a little small group of academics who do this kind of work on juries. I tried to get to know all of them and get started and learn everything I could. Um, Still do that. We're publishing work academically that I think is helpful to the practicing bar. But that led to um, coming full circle, studying a couple of cases. One was my wife's case. And one was John Simon's case, uh, and trying to use a big data approach to understanding the case instead of a smaller, sort of focus group approach. It worked, and six years later, here we are at Empirical Jury, studying cases all over the country, and, and uh, probably the most fun I've fun I've ever had.
0: Well, John, there's <laughs> there have been so many people before you who have tried to crack the code of juries, uh, and uh, the great Don Keenan has tried to uh, and has used focus groups uh, for many years. And a lot of other lawyers are using individual groups, focus groups to try and understand uh, what a real jury might do. So how, how is what you're doing different than bringing in 12 people off the street and focus group setting uh, to run
1: run your case by? Sure. The The, the simple answer is it's, it's a lot more people. Because of the ability now to get people who are online looking for work, We can do the same thing, but we can do it with four or five hundred jurors instead of 12. And there are some there are both some statistical advantages and accuracy advantages. There's also just sort of some completeness there. You know, the if you have a focus group of 10 or 12 people, um, you learn what those 10 or 12 people think. And that's great. What's very hard to know is if those 10 or 12 people are sort of outliers that day uh, that you wouldn't see again or whether that is, in, in fact, Um, exactly how most people think about the case. So you learn things, there's no doubt. In-person focus groups are still useful. You still learn information. You just have to be cautious. I mean, because if you start to think, oh, well, you know, when I say these things, women love my case, for example, to be, you know, really like, when when I do this, all the women love my case. Well, all the women might've been the five in the room. And if you start believing that too deeply and act on it, that's what's often called in the social science world, a false positive. Right. You, you've, you believe you've seen a pattern, but what you've really seen is just coincidence. Uh, and so when you get big numbers, when you get big samples of people, you can do some things. So, for example, if you have a, a plaintiff and you wonder, is my plaintiff credible? If you put your plaintiff in a room with 10 people and ask them, first of all, you have to be really careful. They don't know it's you sponsoring the work, because if they do, you should send them home. They, there's no reason to listen to what they say. They're trying to please you. I think it's completely unreliable. Send them home. But let's assume you can somehow disguise effectively that you represent the plaintiff and that you're sponsoring the work and you're paying them. If you can disguise all that. What if, you know, seven people say, I believe the plaintiff out of the 10 in the room? It's really hard to know. Does that mean overall, most people find your plaintiff credible and like your plaintiff? I'm not sure, right? But if you put that same plaintiff on video in front of 300 people and you find that 85% of all people said credible then what you know is, is that on average, there's a high likelihood that jurors will believe your plaintiff. And so you play the odds. And sometimes somebody smart will say to me, well, yeah, but what about that other 15%? That's absolutely true. You could have a weird day where you only got the people who don't believe your client, right? Could happen. But you know, in all of life, we try to play the odds. And so I think part of what we do that is working, at least for us, is we're getting more accurate and precise data on what those odds are for all sorts of questions in cases.
0: Well, it sounds like, um, and we, I think we even talked about this example. But when you're, I, I'm not a statistician, obviously, but um, I'm familiar with this concept that if you get, uh, you know, large sampling groups to answer a discrete question, that there is a a statistical driver that will reach the accurate answer. In the example that I'm familiar with is the huge jar of jelly beans, for example. Well, if you get, you know, 10 people guessing what's, how many jelly beans there are, you'll get widely divergent answers. But if you get 10,000 people all guessing how many jelly beans are in the jar, weirdly, you get something very close to an accurate response. If you look at the mean, can you talk about that concept? And is that part of what you're, what you're doing in these jury analytics?
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely Part of it is so it's true that there's there's without getting too nerdy, there is um, a lot of evidence and studies to say that if you get two or three hundred people even to do something, that what you'll get is you'll start to get the outliers will wash out and you can start to trust some of the things you can do statistically, including things like the averages or the median. That would only you know, some people say, well, okay, but the jury's still only six or eight or 10 or 12. And so I think there's one more piece to the puzzle, which is what we also know is that in deliberation, what deliberation does is tend to do that same thing, which is it tends to wash out outliers and tends to move people towards something that looks more like if we're thinking about damages, for example, the average. And so there's a lot of backward looking studies at jury verdicts and then polling those jurors about their starting positions. And what we find is, is that they move towards an average. And so the best we can do as lawyers right now, at least in my view, is if we know what the likely values jurors are going to assign to our case, for example, are and we have enough people that we can have some confidence that this is the sort of average band of values we're going to hear. Then we can, with big data, predict a likely average. And as long as deliberation does its job, that's going to map on pretty well to what jurors do.
0: This episode of Face the Jury is brought to you by Forge Consulting. For nearly 20 years, Forge has helped victims of personal injury manage their settlements. Forge Consulting has been a big help in my legal practice. I've been working with them for, gosh probably 10 years now, and they are always available to answer questions. They help when I have liens that need to be resolved before I can finalize a client settlement. They have been fantastic to work with, in giving advice to my clients on how to handle their money. And most importantly, they're just good people. I've worked with Corey Phillips uh, for many years, and he is always available to answer any questions I may have. From structured settlements to managed funds and other investment vehicles, Forge Consulting has the expertise and the knowledge to help make the money last a lifetime. To learn more about how Forge Consulting can help you, visit forgeconsulting.com. Back now to John Campbell, founder of Empirical Jury. I am uh, incredibly excited uh, to begin working with you. We've, we're, we're starting to develop some cases that we're going to work on together. Um, but I'd like, it, I'd like you to bring it kind of from the, the theoretical 10,000-foot uh, view and bring it to the ground. Um, explain to lawyers that are listening to this podcast trial lawyers that might be interested in, in how this uh, as works on a practical level, talk to us about the, your process. And sure. and then I'd like you to talk about some of your results because I know a lot of your results and and they're amazing. So I want to hear and share yeah. those with our listeners. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Yeah, the, um, the process in a real simple way is this. When we meet with lawyers, we want to understand the case. My, when I say we, I'm talking about my wife, Alicia, and I typically are the people talking to them Alicia is a trial lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. So we're both listening with lawyer ears to the case Uh, because we need to, what we show jurors then is we show them something that I always describe as sort of a mediation statement for jurors, a plaintiff case and a defense case that is some combination of text, images, and video. And so the jurors experience it almost like they would a website. And that's on purpose because jurors are pretty good at consuming information that way. And so they're, they're reading some, but they're also looking at an accident diagram or medical illustrations or whatever they need to see. They're seeing pictures of the plaintiff and the hospital if it's a med mouth case. Um, they're watching animations of, you know, what is a pericardium and what does it do when it fills up with blood and what does periocardia look like? All those sorts of things, whatever you need. And then you can also show them clips of video, whether that's dash cam video or workplace video or animations or depot clips. Uh, and so we work with the lawyers to get that together, a plaintiff and defense case uh, that jurors can then experience. We are dogged about the fact that the defense case needs to be as rich and as detailed as the plaintiff case. It does not We don't keep out the good evidence for the plaintiff or we don't make up evidence for the defense. But what we want is when jurors look at these two sides, we don't want them to have any instinct about who's sponsoring the study. Uh, and so that part of the process, I think of as sort of phase one, meet with the lawyers, Get the presentation together, pass it back and forth until we all love it and say, this is a fair capture of the case. If we don't get that right, the data's junk. Uh, because garbage in, garbage out. We we have to get that right. And that requires sometimes a lot of things outside of data. For example, somebody will say to me, Well, you know, I have these five OSIs in a product liability case or whatever. And the next question is, well, are they likely to come in? Are the other similar incidents likely to come in? Sometimes they say, we've already got a ruling. They're absolutely going to come in. Great. They go in the presentation. Sometimes they say it's 50-50 that they'll come in. Then we have to identify, oh, well, maybe we need to show half the jurors the case with the OSIs and half the jurors the case without the OSIs because we need to know the impact of those OSIs when everything else is held constant because if the judge excludes them, we need to know what to do with that.
0: And and just for our listeners who may not be familiar with OSIs, you're talking about other similar incidents. So prior, similar falls, if it's a premises liability sure. case or car wreck, So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm, I want to be no, mindful of our no, whole audience.
1: Yeah, that's right. No, so yeah. And as you know, I mean, I'll just give you a concrete example. We were working with an attorney named Charla Aldous out of Dallas. She's one of my favorite attorneys in the country. I know you know she's her She's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I do. She's, yeah. she's a
1: wonderful lawyer. Great She's results. just extraordinary. Oh, I mean, I think she had four eight-figure verdicts in like 18 months. Um, I, I don't think people realize how good she is. Um, but she had a she had a case where it was a hard product case about a, a Honda uh, that had a weird middle back seatbelt and her client had not had the seatbelt on correctly and was paralyzed as a result when the car rolled over. Well, the expert made this great video where he went and got 12 ordinary people and said, try to put the seatbelt on following the directions. And none of them could. And it took them 10 minutes to try to figure it out. And I'll tell you, after you watch the video, it was clear the seatbelt was bad. Um, The design was no good, but she said, look, I don't know if I'm going to get this in or not. The judge has expressed some hesitancy. So in that case, for example, we showed half the jury, the case with that video and half the jury. So we're talking about about 150 people saw the case with the video and 150 people saw the case identical case all the way down to the damage request, but without the video. And in that case, the win rate changed by 15%. And by win rate, I mean 15 out of every 100 people voted differently when they didn't see the video. So what we were able to to determine was this video is really important. In fact, it may be that if the video is excluded, it is much harder to win the case. Well, that's the kind of information that is really useful because, of course, then you know we got to go to war in the motions and limiting. Right. And we got to be careful about this. The other thing is, if the judge excludes it and you have a settlement offer on the table, maybe we need to listen.
0: When I consider what you do and the role it plays it seems to give actionable data. You know, so many trial lawyers, myself included. You know, we we rely so much on prior experiences. <clears throat> we rely so much on um, little hip pocket uh, focus groups with our our barber or <laughs> or our uh, paralegals or, or anybody we come in contact with. And um, but there's that instinct you have touched on a few times that if people Know what you're looking for; they tend to want to give you what you're looking for, and I've seen that in focus groups when I that I've that I've put on. And I try to try to keep it clean and you know pretend that I'm neutral, but it comes it leaks out. I mean, I can't I can't be neutral when I'm talking about the defense science because I don't believe it to be true. <laughs> so I, I'm really impressed by your use of data, and the way I think about it is that it combats a lot of the biases that human beings are are burdened with you know the availability bias, the idea that, well, if ten people I know tell me I've got a great case, I must have a great case. So the data seems to have a a more useful role in protecting you from yourself in a sense, and, and giving you real numbers and real responses from people to make decisions. so so talk to talk to the lawyers listening to this about how, okay, they 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 hire your company, you do these large data samplings. What do they do with the data? How do they, uh, you gave one example, but give some more examples of how the, the data can, can be in, incorporated into the process.
1: Sure. I mean, the first, the, the, maybe the first thing is to think of it as a diagnostic. Um, so I, that's how I think of, of our reports. We send out reports that are, we work hard to take the data and then put it in sort of language that lawyers can understand with lots of charts and graphs and visuals. And then, of course, we always have a kind of a debriefing call and walk through it. But the first thing I always look at when I get the data, because I'm like a kid at Christmas, every time I see in my inbox that our, the data is in from a study, I'm excited to open it because I want to see what's going on with the case. Uh, and so I look right away at what's the win rate. So what percentage of jurors vote for liability? I mean, you know, there's just a we think we know that about cases, but I can tell you having done it on hundreds of cases that sometimes in my mind, even trying to be neutral and fair. I think the plaintiff will win this case and then I get the data back and it's 50% don't like the case. Well, I mean, we need to know that about our own case. Do we have something that looks like a slam dunk? Do we have a close call every once in a while? Do we have a case that we're probably going to lose and we need to get out of if we can't change it? Um, That's the first thing. Next thing is let's look at the awards. What are jurors doing with damages? I just sent out a report in a case where the, the attorney felt very strongly that his client had demonstrable and clear TBI, traumatic brain injury, and that no juror would doubt it. But when we looked at the awards, about one out of every four jurors were giving only the medical bills, which told us that they did not believe that there was any ongoing lasting injury. Well, we needed to know that because we got to check our own blind spots. So now we're talking about in that case, how do we convince these jurors who are unconvinced um, that there is a traumatic brain injury here? And it's led us to some interesting places because one of the things, of course, we realized was the client is a terrible witness for herself because she's, because as often happens with mild TBI, she's somewhat articulate. Uh, she was a high functioning, very intelligent person before, and that compensates for a lot of things. And so if you just hear her talk for five or 10 minutes, you think she seems fine. Well, that told us that we need to look harder at before and after witnesses. We need to be really smart about how we use her as a witness. Um, so we get things like that. Fault, you know, in, when you have comparative fault, you need to understand. How likely is my client will take fault? How much fault is my client likely to take? And in states where it matters, is it likely to be enough that I lose the verdict? Uh, is it going to hit that 50 or 51% depending on the venue or in a few where it's pure contrib, are they going to get 1% and we're going to lose? Um, so those are you know, some of the big diagnostic things. And then we can look at all sorts of things about when people vote for the defense, we ask them, here are all the arguments the defense made. Tell us the most important ones. And we can start to say, when you lose, Mark Mandel a good friend of mine. and You know, he always talks about the just can't get over issues. Right. So Mark and I spent a lot of time looking at reports saying, all right, what's our best issue that once we prove it, we're starting to win? But also, what is it that defense jurors keep mentioning at the highest rate? Because that's their just can't get over issue. Bad for us that we have to, as Mark would say, at least dent. Um, and so we can also use data to start to understand when we lose, why we lose. And then finally, and I, then I'll, I'll shut up is uh, if you think about political polling, it makes it easier to imagine if I asked you know, listeners to predict whether a person they can't see and don't know voted for Trump or Biden in the last presidential election, the smart money's on Biden. He got more votes. But if I gave if they were smart, they might say, can I ask a few questions? And if they asked, well, is the person male or female? Are they white or non-white? Are they college educated or not college educated? They could make a much smarter guess about how that person voted, because, of course, a white male who's not college educated voted for Trump more often than Biden. So we can do the same thing with juries. If we have 500 people who've decided a case, awarded damages, given fault, decided punitives, done all those things, we can look backward and say, do people with different levels of education receive my case differently? Uh, do people who have had experiences with doctors in the past treat my case differently than people who have maybe never had a problem with a doctor? Um, in, a, in a trucking case, do people who have experience driving heavy machinery or working blue collar jobs receive my case differently than people who don't? And then we can start to make some really smart decisions about who we seat during selection to all other things being equal, improve our chances of helping our clients.
0: That's, that's just fascinating. Um, it's, it makes me a little surprised that uh, it's taken, taken this long for somebody to kind of meld the big data analytics piece with, with the jury research piece, because you know we're always looking for advantage. We're always looking for ways to better serve our clients. I was in a deposition recently, and my partner and I have developed some new techniques for taking defense expert depositions. And I may give a, do a podcast on that down the road because it's very useful, very useful to control the witness, but most importantly, to get uh, clean, clear uh, testimony on what their opinions are. And the uh, defense lawyer turned to me on a break and, well, it's actually during the deposition and kind of objected to what I was doing. He sneered at me and he goes, oh, is this one of those things you learned at one of your seminars? <laughs> yeah, you know, real kind of disparaging. And I said, well, You should go to a few more seminars. (laughs) We have to keep learning and keep learning. It's a fascinating conversation and one that will take us another episode to unpack in full. So we'll pick up our conversation with John
1: Campbell next time on Face the Jury.